Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Was the night before Christmas, and all through the Hold house... it now, wait, hold it. That's played out. Hit it! I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On this episode, we're going to talk Christmas songs with music journalist and industry insider Bill Adler. Every year, Mr. Adler puts out a compilation called Christmas Jollies, in which he tries to highlight lesser-known recordings of the season, and we're going to talk about a few of those nuggets of goodness. One track had such an interesting background story that Adler wrote an article for the Smithsonian Magazine, and then later, a longer chat book called The Making of Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin'. We'll get to that song and book in a minute, but first, Mr. Adler explains how he initially got the Christmas music bug. He was rolling, he was bully, and I said, holy moly, you got a lot of wishes on your chinny chin chin. He allowed, he was proud of the hairy little crowd on the point of the door where the skin should have been. Get cool I never cared, you know, terribly much about Christmas music when I was growing up. You know, I mean, it was it was in the air at Christmas time, but, you know, I'm Jewish, my family's Jewish, and we celebrated Hanukkah, sort of. And so, you know, Christmas music certainly was not a thing for me because Christmas wasn't a thing. But, um, you know, then, uh, you know, in 1981, I married a, a Gentile woman, and her family celebrated Christmas, and so, you know, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thrust into the middle of it. And, you know, as, you know, a, a family event, you know, a family ritual every year, you know, there was an awful lot to love about it. But uh, the one thing I didn't know crazy about was, was the soundtrack, you know, sort of the family soundtrack and also the more general soundtrack. You know, once I had to pay more attention to this genre, uh, I, I kind of found less to like about it. And uh, my idea was, you know, let me uh, do what I could to create a soundtrack for myself that would help get me through the holiday, you know, an alternative soundtrack. What, what didn't you like about, I guess you're talking about contemporary Christmas music or nostalgic Christmas just music? Stay, all of it, you know, the, the stuff that just constituted the mainstream of it all. You know, I get married in 1981, and, you know, we start, you know, my dear wife insists, or whatever, let's just say that it's starting right around that time. You know, I'm, I'm all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm celebrating Christmas every year. And, and even as late as 81, you know, it's not just that, uh, you know, you've got goofy like that record out of England, Do They Know? It's Christmas. But, you know, you're still, it's still Bing Crosby and, and Gene Autry. And, you know, I mean, they, Crosby recorded White Christmas, I think, in the 40s. Mm. And guess what? It happens to be a great record. But, you know, uh, 40 years and then, you know, 10,000 listens later, I don't, I don't care about it anymore. It's just used up. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every and then, you know, my wife's family also would turn their attention to, you know, and I'll probably get this wrong, like the Cambridge College Choir. 
an international broadcast out of England. And so, you know, that's a very, uh, it's just, it's very serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it means a lot uh, spiritually to my wife's folks, but you know, me, I, I, I just couldn't get to it. So, you know, and, 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 you know, by that time I had my own taste, uh, in other kinds of music. And I thought, well, let me, you know, see what I can do to amuse myself in this way. So to set up a couple of the songs we're going to talk about, if you yeah. don't mind explaining how you got into the hip hop industry, that was, I guess, not an industry at that time, but it was becoming one. I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in Detroit. And it, it happens to be a, a great place to be during that time in particular. Detroit was paradise. You know, everybody had a job. And the, the music was great. Motown was booming. You know, it was it was wonderful for you know somebody who was open to music. A great place to grow up. And you know, by the time I was out of high school, you know, I and I, I was becoming a little more conscious of my tastes. And, uh, you know, and by the way, let me say this as somebody who's just about to turn 70 years old, you know, uh, and then this is going to be some some OK boomer stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, go back and just note that the 60s happened to be, you know, a magnificent decade for popular music of all kinds. Just, you know, let, let me say that and, and as obvious as it is. Uh, and. By the time, uh, you know, I finished high school in 1969, um, you know, I'd, I'd sort of begun to understand that, you know, I, I, I probably leaned a little more heavily into black music. You know, then in the early 70s, I was a hippie in Ann Arbor, and I started writing a newspaper about music. And um, by 1979, I was working as the pop music critic for the Boston Herald. And... You know, I was just going to pay attention to to everything that was was sort of happening as best as I could. Uh, that was the gig. And one of the things I did when I was in Boston is I listened pretty regularly to radio station WILD, uh, which was the city's only black radio station. And it was uh, then that I first heard, you know, say, you know, the fall of 1979, I heard this record, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, which was the you know one of the very first rap records of any kind, and it was certainly the first breakout hit, and that was fairly remarkable. You see, I'm six foot one, and I'm tons of fun, and I dress to a D. You see, I got more clothes than Muhammad Ali, and I dress so viciously. I got five and you know, also, I, I suppose it's worth noting it didn't sound to me like it came from another planet. You know, um, there were lots of folks who heard it and scratched their head. You know, what's rapping? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't they singing? And also, by the way, why was the single 15 minutes long? There was a three-minute edit of it. But, you know, if the folks at ILD, you know, played the three-minute version, their phones would blow up because kids out in the hood would be calling and say, hey, you know, play the full version. So 
it's a, it's a hit song that's 15 minutes long and nobody is singing. And even so, you know, I could hear where it was coming from. Rap music, you know, at, at least as much as any other kind of, you know, music or any other kind of art form is very, very informed by its predecessors. And so, you know, I could hear the soul in it and I could hear the disco in it. And, you know, I've been listening to, you know, uh, talking blues and to the, uh, you know, Gil, to Gil Scott Heron and the last poets and, you know, on and on and on, you know, um, for years. So it didn't, it didn't strike me as, as, uh, nuts. So then in, in, you know, December, 1979, here comes a record by a, a rapper named Curtis Blow called Christmas Rappin'. And so I listened to it and I found a lot to like about it. And then, you know, one of the things that was uh, uh, fairly remarkable is that unlike any other Christmas record that anybody could think of that, pre you know, that preceded it, this record continued to be played on WILD in Boston at least until February and maybe later. You know, in other words, months after the end of Christmas. And so that was that was interesting to me. Now people let me tell you about last year when the dude came flying over here. Well, the hawk was out, snow was on the ground. Folks stayed in to party down. The well, you know, I, I had nothing to do with the making of Christmas rapping, but, you know, it focused my attention on Kurt. And so the next year, uh, you know, summer, fall of, of 1980, by that time I had moved to New York and I was freelancing uh, to a bunch of different publications, including the New York Daily News. And Kurt's second single had come out. It was called The Breaks. And The Breaks was a national hit. Breaks on a bus, breaks on a car, breaks to make you a superstar. And break to lose. These here breaks rock your shoes. And these are the breaks. Break it up, break it up. So I was able to go to my editor at, at the Daily News and say, listen, you know, uh, here's, a, here's a song with a national, you know, some national impact. And the artist happens to be a local kid from Harlem. You know, let, let me write about him. And then my editor said, fine. So I met Kurt at that time and wrote a story about the breaks. And, you know, that led me to hear about, you know, Kurt's manager. I didn't meet him at the time, but he had a manager named Russell Simmons. And a few years later, in 1984, I kind of circled back to him because I had an idea about a, um, a record I thought Kurt should make. And Russ and I got to talking about one thing and another. And, and, you know, he just said, listen, why don't you come work with me? So that led to, you know, six years as the, the uh, director of publicity for Rush Artist Management and, and Def Jam Recordings. I want to talk about this track, Christmas Rappin', a little more. And you helped write a chapbook called The Making of Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin', and it was put out by a mutual friend of ours, Noah Human. I, I don't want to give away the entire story because I hope folks will go out and get it, but uh, talk about some of the things that are unique to this story of this particular song that you found intriguing enough to write about it. Well, the, the, the single most intriguing thing to me is there the are two parts. Number one, it was a very, very early rap recording. And, uh, it, you know, it, it came after like five, six years of live uh, hip-hop performances, live rap performances in the city of New York. And somehow nobody had the idea of making any rap records all during that time. 
So, you know, that record, you know, Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow was very, very early. And the other thing is, it was the very first uh, rap record to come out on a major label. The others had come out on independent labels. But uh, Christmas Rappin' by Curtis was put up by, by Mercury Records. And the story of how it was signed to Mercury turned out to be very compelling to me, not least because... You know, the general attitude throughout the record industry was a revulsion or at least, you know, uh, conf- you know, utter, you know, uh, mystification. You know, they, they, you know, they, they, you know, what was rap music? You know, did it even qualify as music? And to the extent that people in the business, you know, kind of wrestled with these questions, you know, they're decision was we don't want anything to do with it it's going to be a you know some kind of goofy little fad and forget it right and that was true not only of white folks in the business but of black folks as well uh and and it sort of speaks to a generation gap uh in the appeal of rap music at least at that time uh, and so you know you, you know the black folks in in the music business then were older they were adults uh, and you, you can say the rap music, it was very new. And also I, its appeal was largely, uh, to, to younger, I don't want to say it was kids stuff, but it was, it was, appeal, it was, a, you know, youth music. And, you know, these, these older black folks were, were just, you know, they, they, they didn't get it. They didn't like the idea of it. It was probably too street oriented for them. You know, if you're going to be, you know, this is a, a broad generalization, but I think, you know, the black folks in the music industry at that time were mostly kind of more, uh, uh, consciously upwardly mobile. And the idea was, you know, however rough their own background might have been, you know, they were operational and they were looking for middle class life or better. You know, uh, you, you can say that their aesthetic was kind of formed by, uh, you know, Barry Gordy and Motown Records, you know, which was, you know, very polished. It was R&B. It was black artists. It was a black owned record label for that matter. But it wasn't street oriented. It wasn't very blues oriented. It was it was more polished than that. And so that was the bias of, of the black folks in the business at the time. So what happens is that not only uh, is Christmas Rappin' the first to come out on um, uh, a major label, but it was signed not by, you know, a black executive and not even by an American. It was signed by a Brit, a guy named John Staines, who uh, had been a DJ and worked in the record business in London and had come to uh, the U.S. to work at Mercury Records, uh, I don't know, in the fall of 79. And one of the very first records that he signed was Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow. So talk about this little book, if you don't mind. Is this based on articles that you had written before? The book is was Noah Human's idea. Mm-hmm. Noah is an old friend of mine. You know, he's a, a record biz guy, and he's a... Uh, not just a, a hip-hop lover, but really he's a guy with uh, a, a lot of interest in what might be called, you know, the catalog, mm-hmm. which is to say it doesn't have to be current. You know, his his taste is broad and it's deep. And so, you know, he saw, you know, this, uh, what, what became the book was published in shorter form on the website of the Smithsonian Magazine in December of 1979. And I, you know, forwarded it to, to 
Noah, and he liked it a lot, and we got to talking about it. And I, I mentioned that I'd written, you know, the first draft of the thing was triple the length of the story that appeared, uh, you know, in, in the Smithsonian. And he was very interested in that. And so I sent him the unedited version, and then he came up with the idea of, of making it into a small book. So that's what we did. So these days, uh, 40 years on, uh, Curtis Blow is a Christian minister, and I know you're still in contact with Kurt. Do you mind talking about how he feels about the record now, uh, all these years ago? I can't imagine that Kurt sees any conflict between his religious faith and his love of the music that he's made in the course of his life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I spoke to Kurt at the time that, you know, I wrote this piece, you know, two years ago for the Smithsonian Magazine, the original piece from which the book grew. And, um, you know, his memories of the making of the, the song and his enduring love of it, are, you know, are, it's just strong. He still loves it. A lot of folks maybe listening to this that didn't grow up when we did, uh, that maybe grew up in the 90s, this song kind of got a little bit of a rebirth uh, where right. it got sampled by a group called Next, and the, the track was called Too Close. So I think if folks hear the Christmas rapping song for the first time, they think, why does that sound so familiar? Uh, and that would be why. Don't stop. Actually, uh, the song uh, itself, Christmas Rappin', was re-released, I think, in 93 and then again in 94 at Christmas time, and did well both those times. And then, uh, you know, even before then, the song was starting to be sampled by all sorts of other folks, mostly, you know, rappers, but not exclusively. Mm. And, uh, yeah, all, all of that contributes to, uh, you know, the enduring appeal of the, of the original. Back at the bowl of north where everything is gold. But if he were right here tonight, he'd say, Merry Christmas, and to all, a good night. Back in the 1980s when I was in high school, there was another Christmas hip-hop record out that I wanted something awful. But with my limited allowance money, I had to choose between getting a Christmas present for my dad or getting the record for myself. So, thinking myself clever, I did the most unchristlike thing, bought the record, and gave it to my dad for Christmas. He was polite about the gift, though he clearly wasn't interested in it, and soon it was left to collect dust on the family LP collection, at which I pounced, and not without a healthy amount of guilt, I listened to that track over and over. Mr. Adler had a role in the making of that particular record, which started with its sample source, Clarence Carter's 1968 cut, Backdoor Santa. You know, I started making annual Christmas compilations uh, just to get myself through the holidays in 1984. And I I may already have owned uh, an Atlantic Records uh, various artists Christmas compilation by that time that included a song by an artist named Clarence Carter called Backdoor Santa. You know, to the extent that I was going to make an annual Christmas compilation starting in 84, I began to uh, increase my collection of, of Christmas records in the hope that, you know, any given compilation or any given album might yield uh, at least one song that, that I would love enough to, to share with everybody else, right? 
And so, uh, anyway, I love the Clarence Carter track, and I love, you know, a, a lot of the songs on that album. It's really a great one. Then, in 1987, I was working at Rush Artist Management, and we managed Run DMC. And um, there was a call that came into the office from the Special Olympics, and they were putting together a record, uh, a, a Christmas record, a various artists' Christmas record that would raise money for the Special Olympics. And, you know, it was the start of a whole series called A Very Special Christmas. And um, that kind of call would fall into my lap because it was a charity thing. There was no money to be made uh, on it. And so, you know, uh, that's why, you know, none of the other folks were kind of uh, more interested in profit. You know, uh, uh, the other folks at the label wouldn't mess with it. Bill, you deal with it. And that was fine <laughs> with me. And so, you know, the, the call came in and, and these folks wanted to, wanted Run DMC to make a contribution. And so I just thought to myself, you know, they reached out to all these other superstars. And I think U2 was on it and Sting was on it. And, you know, Madonna's got a track on it and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, all of them, I think all of them, without exception, uh, would go on to do a cover version of A Christmas Standard. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure why. I mean, you know, just knowing Run DMC the way that I did, I, you know, I came up with the title of a, you know, a concept for a Christmas song that they could do that would be an original Christmas in Hollis. And Hollis, Queens is where they came from. And their very first single, I mean, one of the things that Run DMC had done to distinguish themselves from the beginning of their recording career in 1983 was that they had showered praise on you know their their community on hollis and on queen and you know within the, the small world of rap at that time it was a relatively unusual thing to do you could say it was a brave thing to do because you know most of the uh the first you know four years of, of rap records you know emerged from the bronx and from uh, upper manhattan and so the whole idea that you know you know these kids in queens might have anything to say uh, at all in the idiom of rap was like an insult to these kids from the bronx and run dmc basically said screw it you know listen this is who we are this is where we're from from this is what we're proud of you know so i so i thought to myself you know that sense of pride that they have in their community, you know, maybe it'll animate a Christmas song for them. So I called Run and I said, listen, here's an opportunity. They want you to make a record. I've got an idea for you. Here, here it is, Christmas and Hollis. And Run liked the idea and DMC liked the idea. And they both, you know, wrote their rhymes. And then I met them in a studio uh, the studio that they worked in at the time, which was, you know, in lower Manhattan. You know, it was time for me to speak to, to Jam Master Jay because Jay was the group's uh, DJ, but also he was like, you know, an associate producer of all the recordings at the time, you know. And so I brought in a crate of records for Jay to listen to because, you know, it was it was the start of the sampling era. Jay, you know, like a fairly typical hip-hop DJ, you know, he, he would, you know, pull a, pull a record out of a sleeve and, you know, put the needle down and listen to the first 15 seconds. And if it didn't grab him, he would, you know, pick the needle up and drop it down on the next track and, you know, burn through stuff pretty quickly. And when he got to that Atlantic Records anthology, he put the needle down on, on Clarence Carter. Clarence Carter. 
and he listened to it, and I don't even know if he waited for the vocal to come in, but he heard the music, you know, da do da da do so he hears that and he picks up the needle and he puts it back down at the beginning of the track and he listens again and he's kind of, kind of nodding along and then he, he, he picks it up a third time and puts it down and by this time Run and DMC who were in another room not paying any attention to us kind of floated to where we were and they started listening too and I think you know the three of them knew maybe without saying anything that that was going to be the backing track for this new uh, Christmas and Hollis record Run DMC made a video of that song, and the video was very popular on MTV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, you know, MTV uh, did an awful lot to reintegrate popular music in America. You know, when I was growing up, you'd hear the Beatles and Aretha Franklin back-to-back on the radio. In the 70s, weirdly, you know, American pop, you know, became segregated. So, you know, rock, you'd hear rock made by white artists on one station. And you'd hear R&B and soul music and, and, you know, on and on funk music on black radio stations. But, you know, you wouldn't hear that stuff side by side. And Run DMC began to to reintegrate American pop, you know, and and, uh, MTV was a big part of it because they played Run DMC's videos. And, you know, eventually that would open things up to Yo! MTV Raps. And Yo! MTV Raps completely integrated MTV to the extent that after five years, they didn't need a special show devoted to, to rap anymore because, you know, all kinds of black artists were just being played side by side with white artists. So uh, anyway, that video, the video for uh, Christmas and Hollis was a big hit for MTV and it meant a lot uh, to run DMC, of course, but it also meant a lot to MTV. Yeah. I, I remember, this is just a side thing, I remember early on the MTV was criticized for not having a lot of black artists, but they certainly made up for it in time. Well, they did, and you know what? I'm not saying they did it out of you know any kind of uh, particular saintliness or progressive <laughs> politics. You know, not not to take anything away from them, but what they discovered was, you know, when they started to play these rap records, you know, their ratings went through the roof. You know, people of all kinds, including white people, white kids, love this rap this rap music and so they you know that was a signal to MTV that they should be programming more of it so open your eyes let us in we want to say merry christmas and happy new year so for the rest of the program if you don't mind i would like to talk to you about some other christmas songs that you just find are great or they're they're a gem and you wish more people would know about Give us one. Uh, one of my all-time favorite Christmas records is a song called Santa Claus by the uh, the blues guy, Sonny Boy Williamson. And it was cut in 1960. My baby was shopping yesterday, so I'm going to buy what you need for Santa Claus. And it's just magnificent. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's great musically. You know, it's his harmonica that kind of leads the way musically. But also the story he tells uh, is unlike any (laughs) uh, Christmas story I've ever heard. It's real, real particular uh, to to his circumstances and to what happened to him one time when he was, you know, uh, getting ready for Christmas and uh, the kind of trouble that 
descends on him for no good reason at all when uh, his wife goes shopping and um, he's left alone and he starts digging through her dresser drawers looking for uh, whatever Christmas presents she bought for him and put aside. And things go uh, very wrong for him. It's, at one and the same time, it's very dark and it's very funny. And um, it, it also it takes him, I think, at least five verses to tell the story. And there are no breaks. There are no choruses, you know, in order to get through it, you know, he's just got to, you know, in, in, in whatever it is, three and a half minutes, uh, he's got to, he's got to, you know, uh, sing all five of these verses. And it, it's such a compelling story. And it's, it's so well made that I go back to it, you know, every year just to invigorate myself. It's, it's really great. I walked out of the pit and landed on So look at the man and put on all the leaders just a draw. So this is a true story that he tells. Oh, who the hell knows? Oh. <laughs> it's a story that he—it's a story that he made up. I would say this, you know, at the time I think he's probably living in Chicago, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's not an unlikely story. You know, it's a story where all he's doing is kind of minding his own business, and all of a sudden the cops get involved, and then he's—he's he's hauled before a judge, and you know, it—it's just—it's a problem. And you know, as I think about it, you look back from the current perspective and remember this is a record that was made in 1960 uh you know i think that folks who you know paid attention to, to black lives matter would recognize the circumstances uh as as kind of fantastical as it seemed but he said i got the letter to show the judge the boy just trying to find inside the globe oh yeah so you recently wrote an article about an Irma Thomas song, Christmas song. Irma Thomas has recorded two versions of the Christmas standard, Oh Holy Night. And one of them has just, you know, it killed me. Uh, you know, ever since I first, first heard it in, I don't know, 1990. And it turns out it was first cut in 1986. And, um, you know, that, that record is very much a standard. Uh, there are uh, hundreds and hundreds of it that have been recorded you know anybody you know any of the nerds who listen to your podcast <laughs> who uh, visit secondhandsongs.com and type in oh holy night we'll see that there are you know been hundreds and hundreds of versions of this uh, this recording uh made over the course of the last century and more you know you can find a record you know uh, a version of it cut by enrique caruso in 1916 you know when the record industry is is first being born all that said against that background irma who, you know, for, for, you know, your listeners who maybe, you know, don't know, uh, Irma Thomas is uh, kind of New Orleans answers to Aretha Franklin, you know, and she's known as the soul queen of New Orleans. My heart cries out, pain inside, where can you be? So she's a, a powerful singer with a great string of hits to her credit. Uh, it so happens that she's just turning 80 this year. But, you know, she, as I said, she made this record in 1986. 
with a, a you know a bunch of local musicians. She made it in New Orleans for a various artist compilation, and somehow, you know, she just really really nailed it in a way that you know nobody else has. And I think probably it, it speaks to her to her faith and her religious affiliations, you know, and, you know, it was, a, you know, it was a standard in her life, uh, you know, going back to when she was a grade schooler and she'd been singing it in church forever. And then she had the opportunity to record a version for this album. And I'm really not a religious person, but, you know, her performance of that song, you know, gives me shivers. And it happens to be, you know, it's a very religious and, uh, you know, it's it's a song about faith. It's a song about the birth of Jesus Christ. And um, it's, it's just, you know, beyond affecting. A thrill of hope The weary soul rejoices For yonder race A new and glorious morn Christmas music nerds like me, and and all of us make you know a compilation every year, and you know some of the folks who do this, you know the impulse maybe is the same as mine, you know, which is to say, can I, you know, come up with a program of Christmas music that, you know, is a, a kind of a refreshing departure from the standard fare, but their idea about you know, how to roll is basically to turn to, you know, one novelty record after another. And, you know, I get that, but to put together a whole album's worth of novelties on any subject, including Christmas, uh, is, is, is kind of boring to me. You know, the thing about a novelty record is that it's a mutant and this, uh, I'm speaking <laughs> to my own taste. You know, the thing about a, a novelty record is that, you know, you hear it once and you get it and it's fine. But the idea of going, you know, listening to it repeatedly, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up to that kind of wear, not in my opinion. Right. right. But having said all of that, you know, every now and again, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, add, you know, a novelty record to, you know, my annual compilation. And this year, one of them is by a woman I'd never heard of before. Uh, her name is Kay Martin. And um, in concert with a little crew called the Bodyguard. So it's Kay Martin and her Bodyguard. She made a record called Come On Santa, Let's Have a Ball in 1962. Oh Santa, please don't. Oh Santa, please don't stop. Oh, Santa. And it's uh, really some kind of vintage, you know, I don't want to I don't want to call it smut. But, um, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's X-rated, but it's R-rated. It's R-rated even today. I, I'd give it an R rating. And it's, uh, you know, having said that, it's very amusing. And I'd never heard of it before. I just discovered it this year. And I put, I put it on this year's Jollies. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did. Oh, Santa, please don't stop coming around. It's very short. I don't think it's two minutes long. It's like a minute and a half long. And, um, you know, she just, uh, it's a woman speaking directly to Santa. And uh, somehow Santa is with her and he's coming onto her. And, you know, she uh, it, it, it 
kind of conducting a, a tug of war with herself as much as with Santa, because uh, Santa's coming on strong, and she's saying, uh, you know, no, no, Santa, please don't, please don't, you know, and then it's please don't stop. Oh wow! You know, and by, right, and then finally at the end of the piece. She succumbs to his come on. Dang. So you can imagine if people are getting up in arms about uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, they heard this one, man. Right. Oh, well, that's another, that's, you know, Baby It's Cold Outside is another one of my favorite records of all time. And, you know, I understand that, you know, you, right, you know, why some people get up in arms about it. Uh, they think that. You know, the guy is, is much too forceful. Uh, and, uh, you know, essentially he's violating this woman. And, you know, I suppose in the current climate you could see it that way. Uh, I, I think there's more back and forth. And I think it's subtler than that, you know. And I really don't see, you know, uh, the guy forcing himself on the woman. But, you know, that's me. And God knows, you know, maybe there'll be a torrent of abuse hurled at me now that I've said as much. <laughs> all I would say, all I would say is this, is, is please, you know, that's, a, that's another song. Baby, it's cold outside. It's been recorded over and over again. My favorite version was done by Ray Charles and Betty Carter yes. uh, in the early 60s. It's cold out there. This evening has been. Been hoping that you drop in. So very nice. I'll hold your hand. They're just like my ice. mother will start. Musically, the performance is so strong. Um, it's really, it's, that's one of my all-time favorites. That whole album, he did a whole album of her, I think. My dad had it. Great record. Um, it absolutely is. And, you know, I, I salute your father for having that kind of taste. Good for him. Why don't you put some records on while I pour? And the neighbors might think that it's bad out there. Uh, you, you talk about having a Jewish background. Is there a particular... Uh, I guess Hanukkah song that that you think is is great and people should know more about. Well, you know, every year I look for uh, you know compelling Hanukkah songs, but that's really it's it's tougher finding great Hanukkah songs than it is finding great Christmas songs because Hanukkah really is kind of a um, you know it's a hype. You know, the, the, the Hanukkah never meant very much, I think, to European Jews in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it was kind of a secondary holiday. I think what happened is, it, you know, people get you know, American Jews started to look at it uh, and and you know, uh, treasure it a little bit more once you know there were Jews in America, and and all of a sudden, you know, everybody's you know submerged. Uh, by by Christmas, and you know, I guess you know some Jewish kids felt badly about it, and so okay, well, if you can't have Christmas, you can have Hanukkah, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I let's just say that that makes as much sense as anything else. But <laughs> unfortunately, um, you know, the, the the Hanukkah soundtrack is thin, uh, and I, I, I take I think it's because the holiday meant so little. You know, really, to 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 most Jews, you know, why you know why write a song about it? And you know, you you have um, you know in South Park, you know, one of the creators of South Park, Matt Stone, 
is is a Jewish guy, and I imagine, you know, he had something to do with the making of uh, the performance in one of the South Park episodes. Of it's called Dreidel, 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 yeah. whatever it's called, and you hear you, you hear oh, you know, one of the the South Park kids singing it. You know, one of the South Park kids happens to be Jewish, as I think about it. And he goes, oh, dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay, and when it's uh, dry and ready, oh, dreidel, I will play. Second verse, same as the first. And he goes to repeat himself, you know? And, you know, that's a measure of how lame the song is, right? So, you know, uh, having said all of that, you know, it's it's a uh, a challenge for me every year to find uh, cool new Hanukkah stuff. And this year, I found one that I was very happy about. You know, the the song is called "Days Long Ago," but it's really uh, it's a rewrite. It's a slight rewrite of a song called uh, Hanukkah O Hanukkah. Uh, and the, the basic idea is Hanukkah, oh Hanukkah, come light the menorah. You know, so it goes on like that. You know, it's a standard. And it was re recorded by some characters known as the Temple Rockers. And I take it these to be, you know, these are some, some, uh, some Jewish guys. Uh, they live in upstate New York, as best as I remember. And they're also fanatics for reggae music. That's basically, you know, so they're going to be Jewish reggae guys. Mm-hmm. And they made, I don't know if they made a whole album. I should remember, but I don't. But they, they made uh, a, a reggae-influenced record of Hanukkah songs. Uh, and, to you know, for the purpose of, of making their version of Hanukkah O Hanukkah, which they called Days Long Ago, they pulled in an actual Jamaican singer, uh, with a reputation of his own. His name is Linval Thompson. And so the Temple Rockers featuring Linval Thompson uh, did a version of Days Long Ago on this year's Christmas Jollies. It was cut in 2018, and I think it's fantastic. So to close it out, like say you're planning your own funeral, and uh, they say, hey, Bill, we've got to play at least one Christmas song at your funeral. What would it be? It's not going to be a Christmas song. I've already programmed my own funeral. Okay. (laughs) What I'm going to do is, you know, edit a little something from one of the Marx Brothers movies, and I can't remember which one it was, but it it was cut in the 30s. And Groucho sings a song to Margaret Dumont. Uh, You know, he's at a party, and there's a whole crowd of people, and uh, the song, the, the punchline is basically, I must be going. I'll stay a week or two, da, 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 <laughs> but I must be going. Yeah. I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you, I must be uh, going. There's going to be that song. And then at the very end, after I'm done, when Groucho was done, then I'm going to go right to a Warner Brothers uh, cartoon sign-off. At the, at the end of every one of our cartoons, you'd hear um, Raymond Scott's song. It was an instrumental 
called uh, merry-go-round. Uh, something, something merry-go-round goes around something, but it's you know, but do 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 right? And then then Porky Pig comes on and says, "That's all, folks. That's what you're going to get at the end of my funeral." Now, we'll have links to a lot of the articles and music we talked about up on the Brofisticate website. And Adler's book, The Making of Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin', can be found on musicarchives.com, and that is spelled M-U-S-I-C-A-R-K-I-V-E-S.com. If you're still in a Christmas mood, back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 164, we talked with another musicologist, Dirk Allman, about some of his Christmas favorites. Or if you're more feeling hip-hop-ish, the aforementioned Noah Human came back by the woodpile to talk about his involvement in reissuing some classic works by Run DMC, Fat Boys, and others on episode 104. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Oh, night divine. Night with Christ is born